1: Balanced investors, I'm talking to you, and although I don't think it's time to scrap balance or asset allocation, it may be time, due to where interest rates are today and where inflation's headed, to start rethinking just how much you allocate to stocks versus bonds in that pie chart of your 401k called asset allocation and the ever-so-popular balanced 60-40 model. Let's get started. Perhaps the most fundamental piece of the equation when it comes to investing over long periods of time is something we've all come to learn and know about investing, which is this concept of diversification. And if we take diversification one level deeper, it's called asset allocation, meaning that we don't want all of our assets in one particular area of the world. Because if we do, and that particular area doesn't work well, then we're up the creek without a paddle. What we want to do, and this is for a variety of reasons, one, mitigating our overall risk and volatility, and two, keeping our own sanity, is to have a portfolio that has multiple pieces. Let's call it a stock piece. Let's call it a bond piece. Let's call it some sort of real estate area. And together, that portfolio, if you looked at it as a pie chart, as long as there's multiple areas in many different classes of assets, it's been shown and proven historically over time to give you a smoother, overall, less volatile rate of return, not to mention it helps with our mental sanity check so that we're able to stay invested in an effort to achieve our long-term financial goals. Today, I wanted to talk about a couple concepts around that. One of the If I think back to a wonderful teacher about markets, Benjamin Graham, who used to be a a securities professor or economics professor or markets finance professor at University of Chicago, also happened to be the teacher to a a guy that we all know very well, Warren Buffett. Uh, And to this day, I think about the teachings of Benjamin Graham. And one thought that I've held on to for many, many years is this thought around, Benjamin Graham said, whether you're 30 or 80, meaning years old, A 50-50 portfolio, half in stocks, half in bonds, is a wonderful place to be or a wonderful place to start. So over the course of investment history, as we've been able to educate and investors become more and more educated, this concept of being diversified and have multiple asset classes in relation to having a balance has become a, a relatively popular concept And the concept of a half-stock, half-bond portfolio has taken on a lot of momentum. Once the 50-50 portfolio gained some steam, its cousin, the 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks and 40% bonds, gained traction as well and has become a very dominant standard allocation for millions and millions of investors. And although that served people well for the most part, and this can be Whether you manually are finding multiple equity funds for your 60% and then multiple fixed income or bond funds or even individual bonds for your 40%, that historically, that balance has actually worked very, very well over time, both limiting volatility and helping you achieve maximum returns within reason with less volatility. Maybe not the maximum, but maximizing you staying invested over time. Of course, The mechanism behind this balance is that if stocks are getting hit and going down dramatically, well, you may have another 40% in the bond area of the market that may be actually going up and offsetting some of those losses on the other side of the pie chart. When interest rates are rising and bonds aren't doing all that well, then perhaps we're in an environment where the economy is getting better and the stock side of the 60% of the portfolio has its day in the sun. So even though both asset classes have made significant returns over time, stocks in the 10 to 12% range and bonds in the 3 to 6% range, so both pieces of the equation have been wonderful wealth-building tools, the marriage or balance of them together has been even more powerful. Today's episode is really focusing in on two very different timeframes. One, I want to talk about the now and what's happening in the macroeconomic environment that we live in today here in the United States and and around the world, and two, how this environment today impacts our investments over the course of a very long period of time, 10, 20, 30 years from now. So we're going to marry today what's happening this year, the year of, let's call it, 2021 and the environment that we live in today, the stock market environment, the interest rate environment, the political environment that is all impacting us today in a a dramatic way. And how will that impact our traditional 60-40 portfolio over the next decade or more? So today we're not scrapping the 60-40 portfolio. There's still great power in that balance. But I do want to rethink these percentages here on today's episode and Make sure that we are thinking through and you are thinking through. If you've been in a balanced portfolio, again, whether you're doing this manually on your own, you have multiple funds that are doing this, or you're even in a target date or just fixed portfolio of funds or ETFs that is trying to accomplish this for you. The world that we live in today and the economic environment is so dramatic, meaning that interest rates are as low as they've been in four decades. I think it's important To take another look at this age-old portfolio construction and see if there's something we can do over time to maybe make it better. And because you're listening to a podcast and you may not have time for the whole thing, I'm a big believer in just not bearing the lead. So I'm going to start out with what I think is the bottom line here, and then I'm going to go through why I think this. First of all, if I think about The interest rate environment that we are in today, meaning that we've had bonds go up in price for almost 40 years and interest rates go down in percentage for 40 years. There's not really another direction they can go except for up, meaning that interest rates over the course of the next, let's call it decade, I would be very surprised if they don't rise in general from here. I'm not talking about a massive spike tomorrow or even this coming year but the trend that has been from 15% on the 10-year treasury down to 12, down to 10, down to eight, down to five, down to nearly zero. And as we speak today in the one to one and a half percent range, where are we going to be in five and 10 years? The answer is likely higher from here. And I don't know exactly what higher is. It could be two and a half, could be three and a half, could be four and a half. But we do believe, and it makes economic sense that interest rates over the course of the next decade should be higher than where they are today, meaning that that creates a very important dynamic for the 40% part of your portfolio that is stashed away in bonds. Remember, the age-old important visual we think about for fixed income or bonds. is pretty simple. Think of a, a playground with a giant seesaw. And that seesaw essentially is the relationship between bond prices and interest rates. So as interest rates go up, that's one side of the seesaw. The other side goes down, which is the price. What we've seen for the last 40 years is interest rates coming down one end of the seesaw and prices going up. But there's another important piece to this visual analogy, and that is that the further out we are on that seesaw relates to longer maturities on bonds. So if you're sitting at the edge of one end of the seesaw, that's, think of that as a 30-year bond. If you're in the middle of the seesaw, right near the fulcrum, and as we can think about this visually, there's not a ton of movement if you're right there at the fulcrum, think of that as a one-year bond not a lot of movement, meaning that interest rate moves have more dramatic effect on prices when it comes to bonds or fixed income, the further we are out in our bond maturities. So as we rethink this tried and true traditional portfolio construction, and we think that if rates are rising over the next five to 10 years, then it begs the question or makes a case that maybe we need to reduce that 40%. Maybe our 40% today should be 30% tomorrow. Again, I'm not saying getting rid of bonds. I think they still serve a purpose because they still serve a purpose when it comes to security and stability. But I don't think it's out of the question to rethink is 50% or 40% maybe too much. And if it is, I also don't think it's out of the question to pull that long-term allocation down. 5 10 maybe 15%. And I'm not answering the exact question here for you, but the direction when it comes to the amount I have in bonds today, or I want to have in bonds today, is slightly lower than where it has been over the course of the last decade or more. Not to mention the kind of bond that I want to focus in on also, I believe, needs to be addressed. And instead of the... Aggregate bond index, which is the most widely followed way to invest in bonds. That's a 70, and again, I'm rounding here, about a 75% government bonds, mostly U.S. treasuries and government-backed mortgages, and only about 25% corporate bonds. It also happens to be a very long-term or long-duration index for bonds. So being a mindful bond investor, I want to think of this slightly In a slightly different way, meaning that I'd rather have a shorter duration, five years or four years or three years, and rather than having all government bonds or mostly government bonds, I like to wait towards corporate bonds. Instead of a 75% government bond portfolio, I want to be looking at a 75% corporate bond portfolio instead, so what does this mean for the other 60%? Well, if one portion of the pie is shrinking, that means the other portion would be slightly higher. So, if I'm looking at an environment where we're going to see more and more inflation, and we've been talking about inflation now for a very long time, and it hasn't really manifested until the economy started to open back up after COVID. And we've seen supply chain disruptions, we've seen housing shortages. And we've seen the the largest supply shortage of labor that we may have ever seen in economic history. Well, what does that mean? Well, it begs the question that we'll continue to see more inflation or higher annual rates of inflation than we've seen over the last 20 years. Interest rates going higher, inflation going higher. Well, what's our elixir for that piece of the equation? Well, there are very few asset classes that combat inflation and can stay ahead of the inflation tsunami as well as stocks, equities, particularly dividend-paying equities that are able to pass through higher prices and higher inputs onto their consumers, increase their revenue, in turn allowing them to increase their dividends, and being able to thrive in an environment that is more inflationary today than we've seen in a very long time. So beginning with the end in mind here, My traditional 50% equity portfolio and 50% bond today looks more like 60% equities and 40% bonds. And my traditional 60-40 allocation that may have been appropriate last year or the year before today looks more like 70% in equities and 30% in fixed income. And if it's something you haven't thought about, well, that's what our conversation today here is all about Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app
0: and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: So let's briefly go through some of the big picture items that are happening economically here in the United States and really around the world. And there are a couple important pieces of the equation. One, taxes. Two, how bonds might react if rates start to really climb. Three, the role that stocks play relative to helping combat inflation, and three, stocks as a vehicle to help combat that inflation. Put all those three together and we get back to one of my favorite topics here on the Retire Suiter podcast, which is, Owning stocks for income, quite frankly, owning all assets for at least some income, and that gets to an important concept called income investing, which I'm very partial to. I want every single thing that I own in a portfolio to pay me something, whether it's bonds paying interest or bonds paying a floating rate of interest, whether it's REITs or real estate paying out some sort of income, pipeline companies paying out distributions, or good old-fashioned dividend-paying companies that are able to ratchet their dividends higher every year. It's the stock piece of the equation, stocks that pay out cash flow or dividends, that may be setting themselves up to be a really important arrow in our quiver as we go through this big macroeconomic environment of change, where taxes, meaning higher taxes, not just here in the United States, but all around the world, can lead to higher prices from companies as they try to offset those higher taxes, and when it comes to Number two, bonds, we're getting lower and lower yields because interest rates are so unbelievably low. We've got to be really cautious with not just the kind of bond, corporate versus government, but the duration of those bonds so we don't get stuck way out in the end of that seesaw when interest rates really do start to climb. And then finally, the equity piece of the equation or the stock piece of the equation, we know that not all stocks are created equal. Some stocks in some areas of the market can end up being really expensive and not doing all that well when interest rates rise, and other companies or other sectors of the market or styles of investing can actually thrive when interest rates are moving higher. So let's start with taxes. We hear over and over again all through 2021 and really back in 2020 with the election that taxes are probably moving higher the capital gains tax, the top marginal federal income tax, the corporate tax or the tax on corporations. All of those categories are slated to move higher. Now, we don't know exactly where we're going to end up, but the writing is certainly on the wall that corporate taxes at some point will go above 21% and the top marginal rate will go back closer to 40% and they'll be perhaps higher taxes on capital gains and dividends. And as scary as that sounds, and it's a topic I don't even love to talk about because I kind of shiver at the thought of any taxes being higher whatsoever. If you really look at where we think we're headed relative to where we've been over the last, call it 60 years or so, taxes going up from here still don't put us historically in a very high tax range at all. If we take both the, corp- the highest corporate tax rate, capital gain rate and federal income rate, and we average them together. If you go back to the 1950s, that rate was in the 55-plus percent range. You go back to the 1970s, it was in the 50 percent plus range. And for the last 25 years or so, it stayed in the th- 25 to 35 percent range. Today, we are at the lowest overall average top tax rate for those three categories than we've seen in 60 plus years. So if our assumptions are right and taxes do go back up, they're still relative to where we've been for the last 25 years, still relatively palatable and manageable. Now I can see you jumping up and down saying there is no such thing as palatable taxes and I agree with you but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Meaning that the trees are individual tax rates going higher, or corporate tax rates going higher, or capital gains rates ticking up higher. But the forest is that taxes in general are still at the low end of where they have been historically, even with some of these potential tax increases that are on the table. This is interesting. If you look at tax ranges relative to how the S&P 500 performs on average. When overall tax rates are below 30%, average annual performance is a little less than 9%. By the way, still pretty good. And that's actually the worst category for markets. Above 50%, S&P 500 annual performance is about 11.4%. In the 40 to 50 range, it's about 12. But in the 30 to 40 range, where we think we're going to land here, Ironically, it's a sweet spot and has the highest average annual rate of return when it comes to markets. So, even though it's ominous to think of taxes in general or any taxes going higher, let's not miss the forest for the trees. Now, let's go back and talk about bonds for just a minute. This is the 40th anniversary of the bond bull market this year. And we've had this great tailwind of lower rates, lower rates, lower rates over time, which have helped prices go higher and higher and higher in general. If we end up getting inflation, and we've seen inflation numbers in the three and a half to four percent range that are starting to feel not just super temporary, but may last for some time, that could be one of these catalysts that starts to end the bond bull market. And we could see the Federal Reserve starting to say, with all this inflation, we need to start manually raising interest rates, which will, of course, push the entire bond market interest rate picture up. And by the way, if you think this US economy, if you're driving around, it seems like COVID's over and we're back to normal and the highways are full and the stadiums are full. In a lot of places, that may be the case. But if you look at the Dallas Mobility and Engagement Index, which I think is one of my favorite ways to, Get an indication of just how active we are leaving the house, going to work, going on vacation with very specific data that they track. It's actually a little scary. They do geospatial tracking for people's, I I believe, with cell phones, and they measure how long you're away from the house and how far you are from the house so they can tell if you're on vacation. So it's a little scary when it comes to this Dallas Fed survey, but Mobility and engagement in the United States is still down 25% from where it was pre-COVID, meaning that we still have some real economic activity to make up for. Well, what is that going to do? Well, it's probably going to make the labor shortage even tighter. It's going to make the housing shortage even greater, which in turn pushes prices in general for both goods and services even higher. So, inflation, an important consideration when it comes to seeing and thinking about interest rates over the next five and ten years.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
1: offer. Now let's talk about that seesaw when it comes to rising rates. One of the things a duration of a bond portfolio or a bond in itself can tell us is the impact of a rise in interest rates. So just by looking at duration of bonds in these different categories, we'll look at the two and the five year and the 10 year and the 30 year. We know what the impact will be on bond prices. So let's start with a two-year treasury, very short duration. If interest rates in general rise 1%, bond prices on on a two-year US treasury would fall around one and a half to 2%. On a five-year, prices would fall around four to four and a half percent. On investment-grade corporates in general, looking at the aggregate corporate index, you'd see a decline in price of around eight percent if we saw interest rates in general rise a full one percent. Ten-year U.S. Treasury would fall around eight, and the 30-year U.S. Treasury, in terms of total return would drop about 20%, all the impact of a 1% rise in interest rates. Again, more fodder to start reducing that 40 or 50% on the bond side of the equation and start favoring the stock side. Speaking of stocks, we're in a very unique period of time. If you go back to the 1980s, a very small percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 yielded more than the 10-year treasury rate. In fact, if you go back to all through the 80s and the 90s, rarely did we ever see more than about 10 percent of stocks yield from a dividend. Again, stocks can pay income too, not just bonds. Rarely did we ever see more than about 10 percent of stocks yield more than the 10-year Treasury. Today, we've got a couple of, of variables that that make that dramatically different. And by the way, today, f- over 50 percent, over 50 percent of stocks in the SP 500 have a dividend meaning they pay more income or more cash flow. And by the way, at a better tax rate typically than the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond. And there's a couple of forces that have pushed this change. One, nominal or just interest rates in general have gotten so low, it's easier for stocks to beat that hurdle. And two, as we've seen 40 years of better and better earnings for companies, companies have been able to raise dividends there are hundreds of companies that have been good about raising their dividends or cash flow to shareholders, and that also has helped a bigger portion of stocks start to outpace their bond counterpart just when it comes to annual cash flow. Of course, this may be a whole nother episode, but this is something that I've focused in on very heavily when it comes to finding ETFs and finding companies that are good about raising their dividends year after year after year. And there are multiple ETFs that are completely based around owning and holding companies that meet that dividend rising criteria, that meet that dividend riser criteria. In fact, if I take a look at one of the dividend grower ETFs that I've owned for many, many years, going back to 2016, paid around 2.6% per year. Again, we're not talking about gobs and gobs of dividends here, but a steady 2.6%. And because the nominal level has stayed very steady to higher, your yield at cost on that exact same investment, meaning the amount of dividends you're getting today, which are greater because they've grown over time, relative to what you paid for them originally, takes your yield at cost from 2.6% all the way up to over 4%. So even though your current dividend, and this works with any ETF or any company that raises dividends over time, if you stay with and stick with these investments and start comparing your current income today, maybe five, 10 years later, to what you originally paid for it, you get something, one of my favorite concepts called yield at cost, meaning that it may have only paid me two and a half percent when I first bought it, but relative to what I'm getting paid today, my yield at cost could be double that, triple that, or quadruple that depending on how much time you've held the security. Not to mention that if you actually look at dividend growers, these are companies that grow dividends versus companies that don't pay dividends. And there's a lot of examples on both sides here. Think about big technology companies. They're not known for paying dividends. Now, some do. But there are a lot of big technology companies that pay zero in dividends, and that's fine as long as their stock prices are going up. But we can compare that to sectors like energy and utilities and financials that historically have been able to pay dividends year after year after year. Well, in the 1970s, the S&P 500 only averaged about 2.5% per year, while dividend growers averaged 75 In the 80s, S&P 500 averaged around 18%. While well, dividend growers averaged over 21. The growth, growth years of the 1990s, growth stocks actually won, averaging about 18%. If you looked at the S&P 500 relative to dividend growers, only about 14. But in the 2000s, that tide changed. And again, if we're looking at annualized 10-year returns, the decade of the 2000s, the S&P 500 was actually slightly negative while dividend growers were up over 6.5%. So there's historical evidence as we go back from decade to decade to decade, it's relatively common that dividend growers in general were able to outpace the market as a whole. Here's the bottom line on this, is that one, balance is still key, and two, asset allocation is still important and it still works. But three, the, the macro environment has shifted here in the United States when it comes to interest rates and inflation. And that could very likely impact the entire next decade for investors. So just because the 60-40 portfolio was perfect for you 10 years ago, doesn't necessarily mean it is still perfect for you today. And although I don't think it's time to scrap a balance, it may be time to rethink how much you allocate to each piece of the pie.
0: information.